that, can say that, and actually mean that, that I love Jesus. Only, only a humble man can say that they love Jesus. Far be it from us to be embarrassed to ever not be able to proclaim how much we love Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is only those who are born again, who are in Christ, who are loved by Christ with that particular love that he has set upon us. So consider that as we consider going to John chapter 19, and then we'll be going to Psalm 22, and then we'll be going to other verse and text as well. So right, it matches. I don't know if any of you saw that, but <clears throat> the title of my message is What's on Your Mind? What's on your mind? What's been on my mind last few days has been on and off tension headache up in the neck and such in my jaw. So you pray for me. I appreciate the prayers already. And thus far, and the Lord is sustaining me at this hour, and that's all I want, and that's all I ask for, honestly. Well, there are various terms used in Scripture to help define the human constitution, not the constitution that we consider the Constitution of the United States, a human disposition, such as spirit and hearts and mind. Spirit can refer to the inner person, inner feelings, hearts, the inner person, the inner thoughts, one's moral condition before God. These are just some ways. And the mind can translate hearts, and it can mean our understanding, our spiritual understanding. And we use all of these in our conversations as, as believers, don't we? Or some others may as well. But we say things like, I know in my spirit. I just know in my spirit. Or we say, you've been on my heart. Right? We, we could say these things. You have been on my heart. You have been on my mind. And oftentimes as a believer, we know when that happens, there's a reason for that. And then we pray for that person. We'll reach out to that person. You have been on my mind is something that we say. You have, you've been on my heart. Or it has been on my mind a lot lately. Then we ask the question, when we say to someone, what's, what's on your heart? And what's on your mind? When it comes to the Word of God, we as Christians have the mind of Christ. As 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 16 tells us. So by the Spirit, we know and believe His thoughts as given in the Word of God. And further, confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Can we, as we consider that, as we consider having the mind of Christ, can we know what was on the mind of Jesus as He was crucified on the cross? We know he was concerned for others thus far, even after being brutally scourged. We saw that in Luke chapter 23. Large crowds, 
the daughters of Jerusalem, two criminals, a group of Romans, and one Simon of Cyrene. And Jesus proclaimed truth, even as he was physically suffering to the point that he could not even carry his cross, and Simon of Cyrene was ushered in to carry it for him. So we get a glimpse of what was on his mind as he was concerned and as he was speaking the word of God. Well, what was on the mind of the Lord as he was suffering on the cross? Can we know this? Well, we can know what he said and we can know how Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled. And so we can say uh, we seemingly know because we see it in the scripture. Not that we can read his mind, but we have the mind of Christ. We know what God thinks because we have his word. And we pray, God, illuminate my mind to where I may understand your word as we open up the scripture and seek to study it. And that should be the case for us this morning. First point, as we consider John chapter 19 verse 23 and 24, was a hastening humiliation, a hastening humiliation. Father, again, I pray, O Lord, that you would equip me and empower me with the Holy Spirit. You'd give me unction from on high, that you'd help me to preach your word, that all hearts would be altered where needed this morning, O Lord. God, that it would be as if this was the last time we ever even had the chance to hear the Word of God, that we would take this so seriously, and that I would, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Hastening humiliation. Okay, so we, we remember where we are in John chapter 19, verse 16. So then he handed him over to be crucified, Remember, this is Pilate handing him over. They took Jesus, therefore, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So we have a hastening humiliation. Even further, they, they sought to do this, humiliate the Lord. Four soldiers present. This is not including the centurion. His outer garments were divided up between them. There were on average five pieces of clothing worn by the Jewish man during this period of time. Uh, the loincloth or a girdle, a tunic, sandals, a turban or headgear of sorts, an outer robe or a coat. Now, four of these parts were divided up. One was not, or not torn apart. This was common practice. 
when they were going to crucify someone, they would take their clothing away from them. So very likely the one crucified would be naked, further humiliation. So consider that's another further humiliation that the Lord Jesus went through. They kept the clothing perhaps as a trophy or if there was value to it, like this, this tunic. Very likely they had value to it because it was seamless. The stripping of Jesus, also stripping down of his clothing, gives further certainty of his death. They would take his clothes away. There are actually those who believe that Jesus only became unconscious during this time. And that he lived uh, to tell, and he faked his death, so to speak, known as the swoon theory, which is ridiculous in itself, if you consider that, or just if you think through it, logically speaking, logically thinking. But the fact that they took away his garments meant something as well. Humiliation, of course, being forced to be nude in public. This was to further humiliate Jesus, as well as when his clothing were carelessly handled by these individuals, divided up, and then this seamless tunic gambled by four men. The shame of nakedness should remind us of the Garden of Eden. After the fall, Adam and Eve's nakedness was a source of shame, and they tried to to cover themselves, did they not? Well, Jesus bore the scorn of our nakedness and shame in his death. He bore not only our guilt for sin, but the shame for our sin as well. He removed our guilt and shame, then clothed us with his robe of righteousness. For those of us in here who are Christians, we are indeed complete in him. Calvin explains Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. So we have this hastening humiliation, seeking to further humiliate the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have, secondly, casting lots cluelessly. They were casting lots cluelessly. Look at verse 24. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. So remember, they divided up the other pieces of clothing, divided them up. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, this tunic, to decide whose it shall be. So they were cluelessly, clueless to Scripture. Uh, They didn't understand what they were doing here. They were just casting lots, gambling as they normally did to see who would who would get this. But this, as the Scripture tells us, was to fulfill Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, this garment may have had some value to it. It was woven from top to bottom. One piece could not be divided without tearing it. The soldiers did not want to do that, so they gambled for it. Now, there are studies where you can make a great deal of the garment and read a lot into it, and there's much detail in, uh, in that and helpful detail. 
But what we need to remember is that all of these details were orchestrated by a sovereign God. And the focus of the gospel writers was the cross of Christ and the death of Christ. The Roman soldiers had no clue of this, that at this moment, at this time, they were fulfilling uh, Scripture, that they were being used by the Lord. It's not like they said, oh, remember what uh, we heard the Hebrews talking about, the Jews talking about? Oh, he let's uh, cast lots right now. No. No, that's ridiculous. Let us consider four main prophecies that were fulfilled in the events surrounding the crucifixion. Okay, four main prophecies. The division of Christ's clothing and the casting of lots found here in, in verse 23 and 24. We see that. This is prophesied in uh, Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And we'll look at Psalm 22 in a moment. Secondly, the giving of sour wine to Jesus to drink. Jesus initiated this action by indicating, I thirst. We see this. Look at verse 28 and verse 29. Or just verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. So we have secondly. Third, the fact that there was breaking of the legs of the two criminals while Jesus' legs and bones were not broken. We see that, verse 31. Here we are in John 19. When the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Prophesied in Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. And fourthly, the piercing of Christ's side with a spear. Prophesied in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they looked on me whom they have pierced. So here we, we're just looking at four things spoken about in the Old Testament before crucifixion was even invented that spoke of what happened and were fulfilled when Christ was on the cross. These prophecies, we clearly see that God foreordained this plan, proving who Christ was. Secondly, this also shows that Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for sin. God is in control, as we know. He is in charge of all things. The scriptures do not fail. Jesus is the one that is foretold in the Old Testament. Which brings us to Psalm 22. Let's go there. Go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. The psalm that we just read. We'll be spending some time here as we go back and look at the New Testament a bit. But we think of Psalm 22. Again, when we read this psalm, crucifixion was not even invented yet. Not only are these prophecies for f 
prophecies that are fulfilled just amazing to us as Christians and help shore up our faith and help us with our apologetics and evangelism. But we also gain an understanding what may have been on the Lord's mind during the final hours of his life as he suffered on the cross. What he thought his suffering meant. Because there's many uh, interpretations or there's many false views of what the suffering of Jesus meant. Well, Jesus himself says what his suffering meant. And And the scripture tells us what the suffering was all about. Psalm 22, a psalm of David, he wrote this lamenting his own suffering, and it also details the suffering of Jesus during the hours of the cross. Mark tells us, of these hours, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. In this time of darkness, Jesus was bearing our sins. At this time, he was under the wrath of Almighty God. This darkness went on for hours. Richard Phillips says for us, John's reference to the fulfillment of Psalm 22 identifies Jesus as the one who fulfills the suffering of David's psalm. So the first and the sixth of Jesus' seventh sayings on the cross or from Psalm 22. It's also during this time of darkness. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a direct quote of Psalm 22, verse 1. We see it right there. A direct quote. At the beginning period of darkness, Jesus cried out, out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This speaks of a Christ having been forsaken by the Father. John tells us in chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said at the end, it is finished. This is a quote of the last verse in Psalm 22. If you look at that, to a people who will be born that he has performed it. And we say, okay, it doesn't say that. Well, let me explain a little bit. ESV says he has done it, and ESV says he has performed it. Translated from Hebrew, we consider this English reading of this does not uh, translate from the from the Hebrew as we would uh, as we read it. We say performed. Well, that word means something different. But in the Hebrew, if we look at it, it is finished. And the ESV says he has done it. In ESV, he has performed it. And John, the gospel writer, says as Jesus says, it is finished. The hours which Jesus hung on the cross, Psalm 22 was seemingly on his mind. Look at Psalm 22, verse 1. Third point, fiercely forsaken. Fiercely forsaken. Forsaken by the Father during this time. Forsaken by the Father during this time. As Christ was bearing the penalty for our sin, which is death. 
As Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here we have it in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see that the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son, Jesus Christ, for the sins of all those whom he would redeem. That is not the popular American message. That is not the popular, he gets us, blasphemous message. That is not even modern American Christianity, most of it. But that's what the scripture teaches. And if he did not bear the wrath from the Father, none of us have, would have any hope. To be forsaken by God is to be abandoned by God. Jesus was abandoned by the Father, separated from the Father, as Christ bore our penalty for our sin. When Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a cry of one abandoned by the Father. How can such a separation exist within the Trinity, within the Godhead? Well, we cannot pretend to be able to explain it completely and fully, can we? But we know it took place, and it had to for Christ to accomplish our salvation. During the separation, Christ not only endured God's wrath, but also the merciless mocking of man. Just as it said in verse 6 and verse 8 of Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. We find that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked Jesus Christ as he was suffering and agonizing on the cross. As we would say in our vernacular, in some ways, uh, putting more salt on the wound, kicking one when he's down. Continuing to mock, as Matthew 27, verse 39 through 43 would tell us. Those passing were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. What kind of cowards? And we see this at times in evangelism too. No, people that can't come up and have a conversation, but they can sure drive by and hurl insults. They can sure say things as they drive by and give you a, a gesture that uh, by their hand, if you understand what I mean. Just for standing on the sidewalk with a Bible. And here Jesus being crucified and they're walking by him, hurling abuses at him as he's suffering on the cross. What kind of cowards would do such a thing? And saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Think of the mockery. And some of us get embarrassed to carry our Bible somewhere or something. Or, oh, someone's going to look at me for being a Christian. What are they going to think for me being a Christian? Look what Christ went through for us. As he was suffering, they were mocking. And we get offended by a little comment that someone says to us. Oh, I don't want to go. I don't want to evangelize. I don't want to say anything because what what if they say something to me? that I won't be able to, to defend or open up the Word of God? Or what if they insult me? Or if I get angry? I, I, I can't do that because I just have, I get angry. Well, that says something about our heart. Look what Jesus went through for us, Christian. Consider a second picture from Psalm 22. The crush of the crucifixion. The crush or crushing of, a, of the crucifixion. Look at verse 6. I just read that. But I want to go into a little more detail of this. When I read this and I studied this out, I, I, I was amazed by, by this. I, I had no idea of this. Maybe some of you heard this before. Maybe I did and I forgot. It's possible. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Okay, this word worm, we see that in Job as well. But it's an unusual statement for us if we think about a worm. Right? Usually when we would say that, when we'd say that about somebody, that person's a worm or something like that. It doesn't have the best uh, connotation to it, does it? Or I'm going to try to worm out of that situation. You know, that does, that's not the best way to do things, right? But here, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. So this is how they looked at him. But if we look a little deeper, this makes perfect sense when we consider ancient Near East culture. Listen to Richard Phillips on this. The expression in Jesus' in time had come to refer to a certain kind of worm, the tola, from whose blood a valuable crimson dye was made. To release the dye, the animal was crushed so that its blood would flow out. James Boyce comments, this image throws light upon Christ's thoughts. For when Jesus thought of himself as the Tola, he thought of himself as the worm who was crushed for God's people. His blood was shed for us that we might be clothed in bright raiment. Now, this perfectly accords with the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Hence, this word, worm. In shedding his blood, therefore, Jesus submitted his soul to be crushed as he suffered under God's wrath on the cross for us. A reproach of men. And despised by the people. How Jesus was treated and what they said to him. And we just read that in Matthew. Even when he was at his, his darkest hour. Even as he was suffering the worst ever. 
And Jesus did not respond to them with insult, did he? As they would mock him, and we consider how they treated him, let us consider that when the world treats us with contempt, when the world treats us with, with hatred, because they're really, uh, hate, it's really a hatred of Jesus Christ first and foremost. That's why they would treat us in such a way. But fifthly, we have this suffering Savior still in Psalm 22. Again, as we just look at these verses in here, we can see in the New Testament being fulfilled. Look at verse 12 or verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Bones put out of joint by crucifixion, not broken. His heart like wax melted within him. The heart failure that was taking place as Jesus was suffering physical, suffering on the cross. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. This, his strength exhausted, this extreme thirst that would have been there. And if you've ever been there when someone is what is known as actively dying, and you're able to give them a little uh, rectangle sponge with a, a stick on the end and you dip it in the water and you give it to them, you put it right into their mouth. And they just, the, the person who is actively dying that thirsts will suck on that water, on that sponge. Because they can't drink and they, or they will choke. But they thirst. The piercing of his hands and feet, verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. Dogs can refer to Gentiles, like the Romans that were there. It can refer to the criminals that were there. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. Indeed, they were there around the, the cross as Jesus was crucified. They pierced my hands and my feet. Indeed, they pierced the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. I can count all of my bones. They were not broken. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There we have that. And consider that. Consider when, when someone is staring at us in a way. Maybe because we're a Christian. Maybe because we have our Bible. Or maybe we're witnessing. And they're staring at us. And what, is our, what goes through our mind sometimes, right? What is he staring at? Or what is she staring at? Well, they were looking, staring at Jesus as he was marred and nude and suffering on the cross for our sins. 
And then we see verse 19. A cry out for help. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. There's that word again. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. A cry out for help from the Lord as the execution is taking place. A wild ox with long horns was sometimes used as victims would be tied to the wild ox as they were being carried off for execution. And as Jesus, as the psalm says here, you answer me, you have heard me. Of this cry of triumph, James Boyce says it, it it marks the moment at which the period of darkness passes and Jesus, having suffered a, a true alienation from the Father, as punished for our sins, becomes aware of God's presence and favor once again. Jesus crying out to the Father, then a description of his suffering, a description of the people around him. And now let us consider two groups of people that are mentioned here in this psalm, and we consider what Jesus as he was proclaiming, as he was speaking truth on that road to the daughters of Jerusalem, to the the thieves that were there, Simon of Cyrene there, large crowds. Think, let's consider these two groups of people here. Psalm 22, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All of you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All of you descendants of Israel. Clues us in. Specifically here, verse 22, remember, recall in in John 17 who Jesus prayed for. Remember, He prayed for His disciples and He prayed for all who would call upon His name that would be converted that would come to him. He prayed for them in John 17. And here he is saying, in the, I will tell of your name to my brethren. Hebrews chapter 2. Keep your finger here. Go with me to Hebrews. Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has been on my radar screen. Was that a laugh at that? Hebrews chapter 2. It's okay. Hebrews chapter 2. Remember, Hebrews 1 focuses on the superiority of Jesus. Now the focus on, on him being the savior of his people. Chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 11 and 12, and then we're going to backtrack. We'll look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for whom reason, excuse me, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, so we are children of God, Christian. We are sons of God. We're also called brethren. Saying, verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing of your praise. This is speaking of Jesus. And we see this in Psalm 22 where we just were. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, verse 13, look at this. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. The covenant of redemption, particular atonement strikes again right here. Now go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Consider this thus far. We're, we're looking at Psalm 22. We're thinking of the physical suffering of Jesus. We looked briefly at the, uh, the suffering of the abandonment of the, from the Father due to our sin, as he bore our sin. Now look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. This came to me as I was reading, not came to me, but I read it late in the game as I was studying, and I thought to impress these things upon us, because we are studying the, the Christ, John chapter 19, Him being crucified, Him being abandoned by the Father, the physical sufferings that He went through. What's on your mind right now? What is on your mind? Right now. Verse 2, For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great it is, is it not? This salvation that He has given to us, that He died for us. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was... At, the first, at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So as we consider these things, let, let us not neglect these things. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 help us understand a little bit of Psalm 22. Specifically, Jesus is referring to his people out of Israel at that particular point, the daughters of Jerusalem, to Mary and John as he will speak to them, uh, as he was on the cross, as they stood before him. Remember, Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. And now while he is dying, as he is suffering, they seemingly are on his mind again. His followers and his brethren. In verse 25 of Psalm 22, We see these, I mentioned two groups of people mentioned. Verse 22, he thought of his disciples, the gospel going to Israel. And verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. 
I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. This speaking of the gospel to the Gentiles. You might find the word congregation in verse 25, or you will see the word assembly. You may see the same word in verse 22 and 25. They are the same Hebrew word. It may be a different word, and that's okay. But assembly in verse 22, the great assembly in verse 25, there's an emphasis there. We find an expansion from the the Jewish people alone to the Gentiles. Now recall that during his time in ministry, Jesus spoke on more than one occasion of a great dinner or a great banquet. I want to bring to our minds one of these accounts. And which one is the question? Well, we can go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Verse 15 through 24, we will look at that. If you're taking notes or if you write in your Bibles, you can write right next to that section, Matthew 22, 1 through 14. That's another account. Look at that later. It's part of your homework. Also, if you want to look at the laborers in the vineyard, that's Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 through 16. We're just going to look at one for our time. And they both have the same kind of message uh, to look at, or the same theme, I should say. Salvation to the Gentiles after rejection by the Jews. Look at verse... uh, excuse me, verse 16 of chapter 14 of Luke. But he said to them, this is a parable of the dinner, a man was given a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he set his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Remember, they were invited. They were invited. He said, come, come. And they made excuses. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled, blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. The master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Those who were right there, who were so close, but yet so far away, as we would say. They were invited. They had it all set up. The full spread, come on in. They made excuses. And they rejected. 
Jesus' offer. And Jesus says, well, go. Go to those out there who who are going to be spiritually crippled and, and humbled and blind and recognize that they are naked without me, that they are without Christ. And go reach them. Similar thing here. The expansion of the gospel. Salvation would go to the Gentiles after the rejection of the people here. The Lord said of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, don't, no need to turn there, but this is what he said. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And then in Acts chapter 14, I'll read this for you as well. Chapter 13, verse 44 through 52. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Consider that. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blasphemed. By the way, as a side note, there is no room for jealousy in Christianity, and there sure is no room for jealousy in in ministry. When one man gets jealous of another man's ministry, that is, is just horrific to consider. Because God is the one who builds his church. And if God is deciding to build a church in one place and let another die, that's up to him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it, judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And here we are, New England, at one end of the earth. Look at verse, go to uh, Psalm 22 again. Again, from you, verse 25, comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and will turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. The message to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And as Romans tells us, how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they know unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The Christ died for us. He has given us the gospel. He has saved us, redeemed us. And now he calls us to be those feet to bring good news of good things. Look at verse 30. Posterity will serve him. 
It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. For the psalmist has prophesied of the salvation that will come to Jews and Gentiles, those who are far off and those who are near. One body of Christ, as we see in the book of Ephesians, one body for whom Christ died, one bride, the afflicted and the prosperous. There is no distinction. For doesn't God save? Doesn't Christ come and save uh, the, the poor? And doesn't he at times save the rich as well? And we know, as the scripture says, how difficult it is for the rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. And we as Americans would be considered wealthy compared to most of the world around us. How difficult it is for a prosperity, for an American who is succeeding to enter into the kingdom of heaven. For we cannot serve God and, and mammon. He saves the afflicted. He saves those who are, who are poor. He saves those who are prosperous. And in verse 30, the focus is on the generations to come. All the way until the last of the elect are brought in. Into the fold. And dear Christian, you and I are in that number as well. You and I are being considered in, in Psalm 22 as well. That should motivate us to a great love for Christ and a great devotion for Christ. Didn't we just sing it? How, my Jesus, how much I love, love you. And someone asked me recently, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, do you love God and love your brothers and sisters in Christ? First John. That's one way to know. Since this is the case, what Christ has done for us, it should motivate us to a great love and devotion for Jesus. And for those whom he died, the church, the assembly, and for the lost who need to be saved. Sixthly, the specific sorrows, specific sorrows mentioned in Psalm 22. Not only the horrific physical suffering, which deserves our study and it deserves our Mentioning it deserves to be preached upon, but nothing in comparison to the spiritual suffering, the rejection and abandonment that Jesus went through. First, rejection and abandonment by men. We saw that, we just looked at that in Matthew 27. It broke his heart. It broke his heart. Psalm 69, verse 20, reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick and I look for sympathy what there was none and for comfort, comforters, but I found none. Who was there to comfort Jesus as he was in agony on the cross? Rejection and abandonment by men. And of course, the rejection and abandonment by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, said the Lord. He cried that out. 
left, abandoned, forsaken. And during these rejections, during these dark hours, as we look at Psalm 22, we can see what likely was on the mind of Christ, our blessed Savior. If that is indeed the case, we find what was on Christ's mind, his, his Father. He prayed to his Father. That was one thing that the Lord did. He prayed to his Father. He cried out to him. His church, his people, he was thinking of them, of the lost, precious souls, you and me, dear Christian. The word of God as he quoted it. The glory of God as he gave up his life and said, it is finished. Consider what was on his mind. Dear Christian, what is on your mind? Right now, what is on your mind each and every day? Is it God? Is it his, his church? Is it the lost? Is it these precious souls? Is it the word of God? Is it for the glory of God? In his darkest hour, we see what Psalm 22 says of the Lord. And he died so that we would live. And not for ourselves, but for him and for his glory. He set us free. And a soul under such assurance is, as Thomas Brooks says, a soul under such assurance is unwilling to go to heaven without company. In the word of someone who said it, I don't even remember, who's going with me? That should be the mindset of the Christian. Who's going with me? I know I can do nothing on my own to bring with me, but I will do everything I can in the power of the Holy Spirit. Who is coming with me to glory? Let us be a people unwilling to go to heaven without company. And for those in here who may not know Christ, heaven is not on your radar screen at all, for you're headed for hell, for eternity. And God would be glorified in that. But there's hope for you this morning. There's hope in Christ and Christ alone. As I was driving, I wasn't driving here. As the passenger here, Lindsay was driving here. I saw on the, the marquee, the sign, whatever it is, I was shocked to the core considering where it was. It said, repent and believe the gospel. I said, am I dreaming? This is a place where, why is it saying this here? That is the message for those without Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord for the salvation of your soul. He is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that went to the cross who died for sinners like us. Let us pray.
Father, let us consider these things as that Carrie would play for us. Let us not pack up our things, but be mindful of these things that we just heard. Oh God, then I will close in prayer. these things upon our hearts and our minds for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.